I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Goner. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome back to Uncover Your Magic. I am just getting off this roll or this momentum of these people reaching out to me and sending me these messages that they've heard this podcast and, you know, what it meant to them, that I've made an impact on their lives because of listening to the podcast. And it blows me away because like I've said in the past, you know, having a podcast, you don't get that feedback. And yes, I read my reviews and, you know, all that. And I'm so grateful. But if I could give one favor, ask you one favor, is when you reach out and tell me that you have listened to it and that you loved it or you would love someone, you know, or you heard someone you would want me to interview. Just that connection. I'm all into connection right now. I just interviewed Lee Harris today. He'll be out in a few weeks. And we were talking about connection and how important connection is. And I really get that because like I said last week in my intro about going to the Joshua retreat and having that connection with people live and the things that we've we've missed because of this these last three years of just being on Zoom. And that's kind of been like the default. And when I when you realize connection is so uplifting, raises your vibration, makes you realize you're doing something that makes a difference or that your passion is like seeping through. So people get what you're, why you're doing something. And then they reach out and tell you that it's, you know, it's made an impact. Those messages mean so much to me. So I'm asking you, (laughs) I would love to hear more from you. If anything resonates, if you're listening, even if you just say, I listened today. That would make me happy. But yeah, anything like, you know, the reviews and everything are so amazing. And I and I know that's why I got to interview these last, you know, probably the last three months has really changed my trajectory in this podcast. I can I can see the difference in the insights, but anyway, I just wanted to tell you thank you for the ones and you know who you are. I'm so grateful. You've just made my day. I always say it's my like my magic moment when I get a text or a DM from somebody or an email. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. I'm coming off a high right now before I am doing this intro. So I just wanted to thank you. So first of all, my guest today, Jason Picard. He, I was drawn to him through Paul Check and Nate Ortiz was on my podcast twice, like a part one, part two. I want to say, gosh, a year ago, the beginning of the year, time goes by so fast these days. I don't even know. But 
So Jason was a client and a student of Paul Check. And I really, if anyone has followed Paul, you'll understand why and do if you haven't. But um, I used to know him 30 years ago. We used to work out at the same gym. (laughs) He doesn't know that, but I knew of him because I worked there and he worked out there. So I am now watching his journey now as a, you know, 30 years later. So with Jason, when I listened to Paul and Jason's like his number one student and uh, Jason, there's, you know, his background is uh, Wall Street. He was like the top trader when he was like 27 in the world, but he weighed 330 pounds and he knew how to be successful and make money, but he was so unsuccessful in his health and body. And it made him, you'll understand when you hear this episode of, you know, how he figured out like he needed to turn his life around and become healthy and realize that, I mean, just to see like when you realize you you reach out to people, mentors, coaches, gurus, whatever you want to call them, but it's so important. I mean, the, if I say like when I'm coaching my teenagers or the parents that I work with, they've reached out to me. I mean, I realize like, gosh, and I see the difference. You, you can listen to all the podcasts read the books. But if you don't have that, like I said, connection with someone and you are committed and you're on the road with them and they teach you what they've learned and they've done all their research. So you're just getting this like fast version of how to do something that you've been wanting to fix in your life or, you know, become something. It's so important. People these days, I think, don't realize the magic in finding a mentor or a coach or someone that will be by your side and who has gone through, who has walked the walk and has all the tools and that you just sit there and are like, he's, Jason was a sponge because he was so committed and I admire that. And I look at people like that, that, you know, set out in this world, not just to get by and just to live life, you know, the nine to five job that he was living and, you know, not seeking out to be the best they can be. And he figured it out and oh my gosh, and it never stopped. And he's like that today, but he has a new course out and we'll talk about that, that he's put together by all the things he's learned from all these people that he's, you know, been a student of. And we're always a student in life and look at life. Like we're always, you're always a student. Every day, all I do, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I cannot wait to, what am I going to learn today? Who's going to teach me something? I want to take that and keep the momentum going. And I, you know, I say that to my girls every day, like learn something new. What did you learn today? Do something different, you know, change the trajectory of your day, do one thing different, but I want to be that role model for, as a parent, you want to be the role model that you're always learning and growing. It's never just sitting there accepting life. This is how it is. You know, you just, this is what you do. You wake up in the morning and, you know, you go through your day and you have dinner at night and you go to bed. There's so much more to life and there's so much magic to be uncovered. And when Jason and I talked in this episode, he will inspire you to go out there and find the mentors and find the people that you can grow from and keep moving forward in life. You know, it, it doesn't end. And, you know, I always say people that, stop learning and growing, 
We learned that in the Joshua retreat, Christy talked about quantum physics and how, you know, the people that are growing and learning are always look younger because they are changing the cells in their body. You know, all of our cells are like, what, 80% of water. And so you can change the energy. So in quantum physics, you, if you're continually learning and growing and seeking, it's, you're continually changing those cells. So you're getting younger and younger. And like Gary was saying in, at the retreat, like all the people he's known in this, like the self-development world, the all the spiritual people that he's come in contact with are always, you know, younger than their age. And I totally believe that when you, when you meet people that say, oh, I just retired and they're just going to sit around and maybe read a novel, <laughs> that's all good. But, you know, keep growing and learning and it doesn't matter what, how old you are. There's never, there's always something to learn. And that is what Jason's going to do today. And you're going to love him. Um, but before we go, going on this amazing episode, remember to, first of all, reach out. <laughs> and second of all, my teenage groups are growing and it's so fun to see these kids get these tools that they are implementing in their life and the parents see a difference and they're reaching out to me and that makes me happy. But that's my passion and I will do that until the day that I can't do it. So anyway, I appreciate every one of you and you know who you are who've reached out. But if I could just ask one little, one big favor is if you could just connect with me and let me know that this podcast has added value or just is fun to listen to. And you, if you have any guests that you have learned on another podcast, I would love to hear about them because I am always looking and finding these beautiful souls to introduce you to. So without further ado, let's bring Jason on. So please welcome Jason Picard to the show. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. All the way from New York. Yeah. I was there a couple of weeks ago on my daughter's eighth grade field trip. <laughs> I, I, I was watching some of that on your Instagram and I was particularly interested because you went to Charlottesville, I believe, right? Charlottesville, Virginia? Is yes, right? we went to the Monticello. We went to Thomas Jefferson's and we yeah. saw the University of Virginia yeah. where you went to school. Yeah, right? that's, why, that's why it was cool for me. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of history and a lot of amazing, uh, really hidden symbolism and, and hidden, hidden messages that most people don't know when they go there. They look at it as, you know, just like a, a university. But, you know, Thomas Jefferson, in my opinion, set it up as a real, a real metaphysical symbolic place to learn about ourselves on, on many levels. It's a very interesting place when you dive deeper into the hidden messages mm. behind the school. Yeah. Well, I learned so much about him and other presidents, but all of his books and his reading and how he uh, like was so interesting. He had such a diverse interest, you know, the, from the gardening. I mean, I was just, that whole trip was, you couldn't learn that at school. That's for sure. No. No, yeah. no, and you know the the original part of the university is quite interesting because you know this is the oldest public school in the United States, hmm. you know over two hundred years old, and the way that it was founded, which I think is a really interesting learning model for all of us these days, is that all of the different departments of the school and the teachers and the students all lived and worked together. Oh. 
So right now in our universities and in our school systems, we have things that are very siloed. Mm-hmm. We have a physics department in their own particular building. We have psychology department in their own building. We have education over here and athletics over here. But the reality is that what Thomas Jefferson knew and what I, I believe is that none of these can be separated. Mm-hmm. How, how can you study physics without understanding psychology? And how, right. can you, how could you teach education without understanding all of them or how the body moves for that example? Right. And so it, it was really a renaissance, renaissance approach to education, which I found to be the most valuable thing in my life is really accessing all parts of myself and be a renaissance person, accessing not only my left brain, but my right brain, not just the Wall Street, but the whole holistic and the creative side as well. And when you can access all parts of yourself, you can really be at your best. Right. Every seat, every every voice, every person and every voice deserves a seat at the table. But what we forget is that that also includes every voice and every part of ourselves. Right. We all of us deserves a seat at the table. And, you know, that's something that I really took away from being there. Neat. Oh, I love that. You know, I have girls that are 16, 17. She just had a birthday and 14. I know your children are a lot younger, but, you know, I look at now we're looking at college and I look at their education and I know I want to talk about that later because, but I want to get into you first, but, you know, I have a vision because I work with teenagers and parents. That's what my passion is to instill these mindset tools that I know you believe in as well, but to look at the education system that we have going on now, like my girls are learning the same thing I did. Like, you know, there's, our technology has improved what in the last, since Paige was born, you know, we didn't have an iPhone when she was born, you know, the last 15 years at this rate of, you know, and now the education still is the same, you know? You know, the education system is at the root of a lot of our issues. The the word education comes from the Greek word edukare, which means to draw out from within, mm. not to pile a bunch right. of information on top of. Huh, I and love it, that. You know, and the education system that we have it is really designed to teach people what to think, not the process of how to think. It's not instilling a love of learning, which is way more important than memorizing any one thing, mm. right? And so even that educare comes back to a Sanskrit word, adhikari, where they would look at a particular person when they were born, study their astrology and say, what is this person based on studying thousands and thousands of people that were born at particular times with the planets in particular places? What do they have a probability of being good at? Mm -hmm. And then they would watch the person and see what do they love to do? What do they naturally call to do? What does their heart bring them to do? And then they would design an education system through rites and rituals and internships, we can say, working with people specifically in that field. Yes. And that's completely different from our mainstream education system now. Right. Oh, you're telling me. I've watched it over the last, what, 12, 13 years and it. It's just interesting now seeing it as a, as a teenager, you know, in high school, you know, really come to fruition of wow, you, what have you learned when, when I feel like, and I know you do too, but like, have they learned, I mean, they have me as a mom, so they've learned the soul and the, you know, we've gone so deep spiritually, but you know, their friends don't, <laughs> you know, and I'm thinking, gosh, what if we could, you know, they been, you know, I've taught them how to meditate when they were like two. <laughs> so, and I'm sure you 
have yours, but let's, let me go back because I want people are thinking, who's this incredible person who has all this knowledge? And I want people to understand where you came from, why I find you so fascinating, why I want to share you with my world. And, you know, when I looked, when I found you, I've known Paul Check. I used to work at a gym in San Diego where he used to work. <laughs> I mean, that was 30 years ago. So you can imagine what he's done in the last 30 years. And so I found you through that. And I started listening to your story. And, you know, 330 pounds, the top 30 or the most, a millionaire under 30, all the, you know, financial, nothing was, you know, you never struggled financially once you figured out that you knew from your dad. But will you explain like, you know, because I look at too the story when you're a child, when you had that report card and there's so many little puzzles pieces to how you got to even gaining weight. And I want to know that story and how you were raised and then the Wall Street experience. And then that turning point, really, when you met that man that was going to help you lose weight in that gym in New York. (laughs) How's that? (laughs) (laughs) How much time do we have? No, I'm just kidding. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think what we were talking about, about the education system is actually a very interesting segue to this story. Because, and I'll go back to the beginning, but for a second, I'll say that what I learned in school was how to be successful financially. But I didn't learn anything about how to be successful in taking care of myself, Mm -hmm. with my mind, with my emotions, with relationships, how to be a partner, how to be a lover, how to eat right for my body, how to move my body, the importance of sleep how to have play in my life and express myself. And in addition, knowing that who I really am is not even this body, that it's the one that's looking through its eyes. Mm -hmm. Those are like essential tools. And if you lived in India, especially in ancient times, that would be like kindergarten. Right. But I went all the way through school. I went to the University of Virginia that we've now talked about. I went out into Wall Street I was insanely successful at a very young age. I was a Wall Street trader. By the time I was 26, I was working for one of the top hedge funds in the world. I was working for Paul Tudor Jones, who's one of the most infamous, the most famous investors of all time. Hmm. I, was, I was on my way to becoming the youngest partner ever at this firm. I was making tens of millions of dollars, but I didn't know any of those things still. Right. The paradox was to the degree that I was successful financially, I was that unsuccessful in knowing what it means to be a human. Right. <laughs> and so it was quite a quite a shock. And, you know, a lot of that is essentially the reasons why I created the course that I've created, the Abundance Archetype, was to teach people how to bridge those two. Because we're, we're under this idea that, you know, these two things are divorced. That if you're wealthy, you know, you don't really have health and you don't have relationships. And I, and I would say, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And then a lot of us think that if we're in the spiritual world or the health world or the coaching world or the therapy world, that it's not right to be wealthy. But my my question would be, how can you have the kind of impact that you want to have? How can you share your love and your, your wisdom with the most amount of people if you don't actually have the resource to do it? So, you know, my journey, just to answer your, your other kind of points in there, began when I was a child. And in the work that I study with Arnold Mendel of process-oriented psychology, or also known as process work psychology, one of the things that we look at is our earliest childhood dreams 
or our earliest childhood memories as clues to really what are the larger unfolding of our life's purpose. And they also hold our core woundings and our core powers and kind of like the solution to any of life's difficulties along the way. Mm -hmm. So my earliest childhood memory or one of my earliest childhood memories that I work with is I was coming home from school with my first report card at seven years old. And I brought the report card home to my mom. And my mom hates me telling this story, by the way. <laughs> she, <laughs> so funny. As a mother, I'm sure you could resonate, but it, she feels like it makes her look bad. But in, <laughs> in fact, I'll say, mom, this was, this was the greatest, the greatest gift, gift? of my yeah. life. Yeah, it made me who I was and who I am. But I came home with my report card and I was expecting this reward you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to get, my mom's going to take me to Toys R Us or something. I'm going to be like <laughs> plotted. And I come home and she's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's not quite, it's not quite there. It's like, you know, you could do better. And I flipped out. I really lost it. And I threw myself back in the air and I smashed my head against this huge flower pot that we had in the house. And I wound up having to get a whole bunch of stitches and a whole, there's a whole kind of, the story continues, very interesting way of, Ultimately, then getting that attention that I wanted from my mom, but from a negative impulse of that. Now she's like attending, tending to me and like holding my head and taking me to the hospital and being very caring. And like, ultimately, that was what I was really searching for in the, the right. beginning. But so why, why are we telling this story? So ultimately, what happened is like my core wound in that moment was that I felt like in order to get success, I had to do it from an external source of appreciation. That my, my idea of feeling fulfilled was coming from my mom, became coming from teachers, coaches, mentors. And I even took a profession in trading where we have a constant report card. Right. Every single second of every single day, you're being told how you're doing. But so that really led to me to this mm. idea, this, this unsatiable problem of that no matter how well I did, no matter how high I got, no matter how successful I was, I never felt fulfilled on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so that was the core wounding part. But the core power of that all was that that actually drove me to the heights of success as well. And it was one of my gifts, right? Right. So when I was 26 years old, I was 330 pounds. I was ranked one of the top 30 traders under 30 years old in the world. Like I said, I was working for Paul Tudor Jones and I was like, by all means, extremely successful, but I was really in a terrible position. You know, I was in a very precarious state of health. I was very unhealthy and I, I was really close to dying. Hmm. And at that point, I met a Czech professional who was living in New York City. His name is Chaba Lucas. And we went through a two year period of grinding it out in the gym, like very like sweaty times, you know, like right. a, a lot of hard work. What and was I, your magic moment? I want to know how you met him because I love synchronicities or no coincidence moments because I know yeah. he was one of those moments for you. For, you know, in reality, I had a friend who had met him who just said, hey, I, this this guy might help you out. You know, he, he might be useful for you. So it wasn't like some kind of down the street bump into him. But I had a friend who somehow met him and the friend turned to me and said, hey, you might this might, you might benefit from this. You know? <laughs> but were you seeking something like, were you? No, seeking... well, the, the real moment was that I was in a real crisis. You know, I found myself, like I said, extremely successful, but now 330 pounds, incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly sick. I had this leg infection that got me into the hospital. I missed a friend's wedding because I was like in bed, you know, nursing this issue on antibiotics. And I was just like, you know, it was like rock bottom, really. 
mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, like this is what my life is about. It makes no sense. I felt totally unfulfilled. I was living at height, the height of New York City. I was being walked into every single club in New York City. I was flying around on private planes. I was spending thousands of dollars of champagne and having lines of friends come with me everywhere. But I would go home at night alone and I would feel so empty. Hmm. It meant nothing to me. And I was like, there's got to be something more. Right. This is not what I expected this to turn out, you know? But so you were like, people knew, like your friend knew you were searching for something to turn your health around. No, I think it was just a moment of compassion being like, dude, you really need to tighten up a little bit. You know, like I'm worried about you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you meet him. Yeah, I meet him. And for two years, we work out in, in an incredibly intense way. I start to revol- you know, revolutionize my life. I'm not drinking. I'm not going out and partying. I'm starting to learn more about diet. He had Paul Check's book in his gym, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, which is a very interesting synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And you know, I lost 170 pounds over a two-year period. Wow. And the interesting part about that was when I lost 170 pounds, here I was, fit, slim, thinking things had changed, but ultimately I didn't feel much different. I still felt that same kind of flatness on the inside and like not really feeling fulfilled. So I thought to myself, all right, I guess this feeling I'm searching for isn't coming from my bank account. Right. I guess I guess this feeling isn't even coming from my body. Hmm. What is this thing that I'm looking for? And I realized in that moment that all I had done is transfer my addiction to excess food and alcohol and partying to exercise. Right. I became I became an exerciseaholic. And that's when I met Paul Check. And he taught me that this was a real inner journey. And that was the beginning of, you know, the last 15 years of deep exploration into this, you know, longest journey we'll ever have to make from our head to our hearts. And, you know, that was ultimately what kind of solved this problem for me. <laughs> right. Well, I thought it was fascinating when you were, you called Paul and said, gosh, this is the, your star client, two years, lost 170 pounds. And he said he went from soggy white bread to burnt toast. Yeah. And now he needs to stop exercising. <laughs> yeah. We, so we made this, my, my friend and trainer Chaba made this video of me like, you know, look at this stud, you know, like he's doing jump squats and this and that. And we were kind of showing off in some ways, you know, we're like, we were proud of what we had done together, but it was sort of like, hey, check out this guy, like, right. you know, and, and Paul was like, man, this guy's, he's really screwed. Like he's got, <laughs> he's got severe adrenal fatigue. He's completely burnt out. He's a fit, sick person. Right. And he's no better off really than than he was in some ways. Right. And, you know, and that's when I realized, okay, there, there's there's a lot more than meets the eye to this whole fitness thing. And I have a lot to learn. And that's when I started studying with Paul privately and realized that from somebody who only had a fifth grade education, I was learning things that I had never learned before, even going through university and working for some of the top people on Wall Street. Right. You know, keep going. No, I was just going to say that was quite a shock and, and and paradigm shifting and breaking for me. Right. You know, just talking to you, you come across like, you know, for sure a seeker, someone like I, I know you believe in past lives and like someone in a like you in a past life of yours, like you're almost coming to a, like, I remember like being pulled so much, like not a lot of people are going to say, oh, I got my body in shape you know, I'll keep going to Wall Street, you know, no one's going to keep saying I'm empty, I'm empty. 
but it's almost like you're getting called because you're remembering like you want, you need to go down this other path. Like I always talk about the yellow brick road and there's a V there and you're like, I need, you're being pulled like a magnet. This is why it's really important to look at each individual child as an individual soul and recognize that it's not all one. It's, you know, yes, we're all connected. We all come from the same place, but the importance of our individuality, the importance of our personhood of being us and knowing that there's no one else in the history of this planet ever that is like us. Right. There's no one ever like us. We, you know, the universe is a novelty generator. Every person is unique. And really as a parent or as a teacher or as ourselves, really understanding that, you know, I talk about in my, in my course, how many of us know the user's manual to our electronics or our car better than we understand our own bodies or mm. the user's manual for our own body, mm. our, our unique makeup of the elements, what diet works best for us, not what we've read in a book. You know, how much exercise do we need? Not what somebody's telling us to do and so forth, right? Right, right. And so I think a lot of the issues that I had as a child, you know, I had a beautiful family in a very loving environment and given a lot of privilege. But at the same time, I don't think anybody really looked at me for who I was in on, on the inside, truly. Right. And I was always looking at the world like something is off here. I don't feel like I fit in. Hmm. And I, I was keeping myself up at night, asking myself questions like, what is death? Huh. I don't I don't get it. What is this thing? Like, is it the end? Does it, huh. go, does it go on? Is it just fade to black? How could that be? And I would ask myself these kind of deep questions like that. And I couldn't figure out the answers. And nobody in my life was there to talk to me about it. Huh. And so looking back, yes, I do see that that seven-year-old me being like a yogi incarnating that was looking for some kind of deep spiritual connection and was confused why he was stuck in this world of materiality and being pushed in, in a particular direction that he didn't feel like he fully fit into. Right. So when you meet Paul and you start you start traveling to San Diego to meet him personally? Yeah. Sorry if you hear there's there's a little bit of um we just moved into a new house and there's construction outside. So I apologize to anybody. If you you can't it. really hear it. Any, no any, worries. Anything. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. So I went to see Paul Check in two thousand nine and um I I went to see him and I it just really opened my eyes to so many incredible things. For one, I realized that being healthy was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Up until that point, I thought it was like, you know, it meant like eating lean turkey breast and kale and exercising <laughs> till you like dropped, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, like doing art is being healthy, you know, doing Tai Chi, stacking rocks, you know, we're like, making popcorn, you know, watching movies and hanging out and going on walks and talking and, and philosophizing and drumming together and singing together and exercising together and learning together and exploring and doing, you know, shamanic ceremonies together. And I was like, wow, this was a total opening. And to be honest, from then I felt like this 800 pound gorilla came off my back mm -hmm. where I felt like finally felt free to express myself and to be myself. And it was a gradual journey even till this day. But that really like took the lid off of, of my, my inner world and my inner search and, and becoming an explorer and master of my inner terrain. Right. You know, that book, The Obstacle is the Way. I don't know why it just came into my head, but I feel like, you know, if people understood, like I look at you and think you, all what you found, like the obstacle, but you, there's a, 
the gift is on the other side. And there you were, you were searching for that. You knew that there was something more. Yeah. And when, when you see, you know, there's, I mean, Paul was the beginning, but to hear how you f- seeked out these other mentors and yeah. teachers. And I mean, you, you just, you weren't stopping. Like that is what is really, uh, I, I admire that. I don't I mean, I intriguing to me. I just, I look at you as like this, this soul that just keeps this so hungry. You know, I just can't stop. <laughs> well, let's look at that from, from perspective of the childhood dream. You know, okay. this could be a good reflection using my own, my own model is that, you know, like I, like part of that was a core power that I had this drive and teachers would come in. Paul check would come to me, Jeffrey Armstrong, white Eagle, my Tai Chi grandmaster. They would come to me and they would say, you're my best student. Nobody works like you. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm doing this all like on the side, <laughs> you know, like I have a job and like, I have like seven of you telling me that I'm like, either I just couldn't get it. Like what, what is everybody else doing? I'm not sure. Right. What I realized was like, if you take it back to my childhood dream, that in some way I was still trying to get the appreciation of all of these people. Oh, that, yes. that if, this, if this teacher could come to me and say, you know what, you're doing so great. You're my best student. Nobody studies like you. Nobody works hard. Mm. You. you got an A plus. Right. Then I would feel something. Right. And so if you look at this dream, oftentimes we can look at the components and, and, and think about what's missing. But what's missing in this dream was the nurturing mother. Mm-hmm. And so my path has been to learn to nurture myself huh. and not need it from the outside, right. not, not need it from a teacher or a mentor or a coach or a parent or a friend or, or a lover or anybody. And at the same time, there is this student and what's missing is the teacher. And so part of my journey was to find these teachers, but also ultimately become a teacher myself. Right. All of this was leading me to this moment of becoming a wisdom teacher and sharing this with others. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it from that perspective, it it kind of makes sense in that this was my particular unique journey. This was my expression of what I'm working on in this lifetime of working through, you know, the karma I've had of being able to study, you know, taking the privileges I had from the money I made on Wall Street and using it to my advantage and the advantage of others by learning. And now I feel like it's my responsibility to step into the role of the teacher, having learned to nourish myself, become my own inner mother, and then share this with the world, right? So it's all right there when you look at it from that early moment. And so like these early things that we remember, they seem kind of inconsequential, but we remember them for a reason. Right. You know, if you think about, if you reflect on what's the most beautiful memory you had as a child, and what's the most disturbing memory you can remember from your childhood? And then ask yourself simply, what was it about that that I needed to remember, that I needed to see and remember today? Mm-hmm. If you think about your first memory of money in any way, think about how the symbols in that scene in your head, as if it was like a movie that you were watching, might have impacted your beliefs around money and abundance today. Wow. You can also do the same with relationships. If you think about the first memory of being in relationship, now it doesn't necessarily even mean an intimate relationship, but it could be a parent, a friend, a sibling, whatever, any kind of relationship. And then think about how those memories that you still remember might be impacting the way you're still in relationship today and how you can harness some treasure from that to step, to step into a more holistic whole version of what you want to become. Right. When you parent as a father, because I know that's really important to you, 
and you have two children from your first wife and then one from Kara. Yeah. The one, your pre, your present wife. Um, and I know there was something, will you explain the way you you parent? And I know that the first wife, she had a like psychological, like you really went through a big divorce, like, like a big, that was a, a lot to go through to yeah. get you what yeah. you were going through at the time too, like to add that to your plate. Yeah. I mean, I, honestly, I think the best way to parent is to realize that you're the best educator. You know, it doesn't matter what school system you believe in. It doesn't matter if you believe in public school or homeschool or Waldorf school or Montessori or whatever. But the reality is, is the children are learning from you. Yeah. So the best thing that you can do to teach your children is just to model yourself what you want them to be like, you know, like to be true to yourself, to live your life to the fullest, to mm-hmm. have them watch you exercise, have them watch you, you know, hug your partner, have them watch you be kind and compassionate to others or cleaning up, which I have a hard time doing, but my, but Kara always reminds me of that. You know, it's, it's these simple things really of like, this is how I live. You know, we can tell them all we want. We could try to teach them all we want, but ultimately they're like sponges and they're just recording everything we're doing. So, you know, Carl Jung says the child is tasked with the unmet needs of the parent. Mm-hmm. So honestly, working on yourself, working on your own unmet needs, getting off the wheel of what your ancestors did that's not serving you or what your parents did or your disempowering belief systems, going through your stuck points, growing yourself, exploring new territories, having an opening mind, questioning life, having a real reverence for life and nature. They'll just feel that. Right. You know, it's almost like nothing needs to even be said. Right. Oh, I love that. You know, Gosh. And so ultimately that, I mean, I think that's what I aspire to do. Of course, there's nothing perfect in it, you know? And then like you try to do that and all of a sudden life circumstances come where you're through like a very acrimonious divorce and it's very challenging on the entire family. But, you know, you just do your best to keep modeling, you know, overcoming challenges and modeling the best version of yourself by working on yourself, by not complaining and saying, this per- person did this to me. Right. You, ask, you ask yourself, what was it about me that attracted this into my life? Exactly. What do I need to learn? What do I need to change so that I don't do this again? Mm-hmm. You know, where, where is this a message for me? And how did I contribute to this outcome? And how do I get off that loop so that I can not only free myself, but free my children so that they don't have to play this out when they're 30 or 40 years old? Exactly. And when you did go through that divorce, I mean, you were like a single dad. You took upon that role. Yeah. I want... There was a metaphor in the dominoes game when you were playing with your daughter. Yeah. And we, I love that story. I don't know why that stuck to me. Yeah. Well, you know, so we, I'm playing dominoes with my daughter and she, uh, I see her about to win the game and I'm like kind of excited for her. I'm like, yeah, you know, she's going to win. I'm like, that's cool. And I see her about to put down the winning piece and she kind of looks around and she sees if anyone's like kind of noticing and she picks it up and puts purposely down one that won't have her win the game. And in my head, I'm screaming, you got to win. You got to right. win. We got to win. You know, it's like beat them up. Like you got a chance to win. You take it. And then I realized like in this moment of clarity, like, oh my God, she's an infinite player. She's not playing to win or lose. She's playing because she loves the game. And, you know, that is such an amazing metaphor for life because of all the people that I've studied that are great at what they do, it transcends just money alone. Mm -hmm. There's a pure love of it. Right. 
there's a love of figuring out the puzzle. There's a love of learning. There, there's just a deep love of the game, the chess match, right? And so that is really an incredible mindset to have because children in that moment, she knew that if she put down the winning piece, yes, yeah, she would win, but then she's going to bed. Right. The game's <laughs> over. Right. Daddy's going back to his office. I'm going to bed mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe we'll pick this up tomorrow. Right. But, it, but if she could just extend the game because she's not in it for winning or losing, she's just in it for the love of play. Yes. Oh, I love that. that and if we powerful. And if we can take that into our life and into our work, we become way more successful. Yes. We, we focus on the career, not the job. We focus on like in trading, it would be my track record or my legacy, not this trade. Right. You know, we focus on the fact that it's a marathon, not a sprint. That's the key to success is just being in the game long enough to be able to reap the benefits. That's something that Paul Tudor Jones would say to me. He says, look, you're, you're going for it all, like, you know, on this one idea. The key to this business is that if you're still sitting here in 20 years and we're having this conversation, you've made it. It's not about this any one trade. Never make any trade your last. And like, that's the whole idea in life. It's like, how do we become infinite players of life? Everything in life is a finite game. Everything has winners and losers. Our bodies have a finite, you know, capacity to them. You know, our jobs are finite, our roles are finite, everything's finite. But within that, being connected to the one thing is that we can become infinite players. Mm -hmm. We can become connected to the fact that we ourselves are infinite. We are infinite, immortal, indivisible individuals. And when we come from that place and play from that in the finite, we are infinite players. Mm -hmm. And, And that is just such a profound thing to be an infinite investor, to be an infinite player of life to have an infinite mindset, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like, it's like the infinite player is looking at their work, like a horizon. Every time they get to the horizon, it's pushed off into the distance. There's no end to it. Right. It's, it's not like at some day I'm going to get what I need. It's like every single day is a new horizon and a new growth opportunity. Right. You know, that brings up my, in my mind, identity. The word identity. I had this conversation with Paige this morning as she was getting ready for school. So when you wake up every morning, picture a wall of, of bricks. You're going to put on one brick. My, I'm, my name's Paige. I go to this high school. I row for the crew team. I miss California. I do, you know, th- that's your identity, right? We wake up with, it's a clean slate, you know, and I, people wake up and say, okay, I have to fulfill that, put that brick on, put that, pull, put that wall, you know, to be the person that I was before I went to bed. And now explain, cause you talk about identity and I really enjoyed it because I've been like thinking about that a lot because you think of this wall street trader, you know, going into the, you know, like what's your identity? Yeah, well, you know, in in process work, there's a term called our primary process. So our primary process is how we would introduce ourselves at a a cocktail party. Yes. Right? It's like, hi, I'm this, married, I have these many kids, this is my job, dot, 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 dot. This is like what I'm into. But the reality is, is that what we don't understand is that by doing that, we exclude everything else. And it actually takes a lot of energy to exclude all of those parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And in process work, we call those our secondary process. It's these things that are unknown to us. And in between them is an edge. Imagine going up like one side of a mountain and then you're at the mountain peak is this like kind of edge point. And then over the other side 
is a secondary process. Things that were being called into, but that we're not quite aware of. And what's interesting is that this secondary part of us mm-hmm. dangles little carrots almost like over the edge at us to pull us over. Right. And so that's what we dream at night. We dream these secondary parts of ourselves, and it's like little things that are like offering us little opportunities to be called into our wholeness. The same thing, interestingly, with body symptoms. We, we, we think like, oh, this symptom we have, this is such a tragedy. But in reality, it's message from our body saying that there's something about our wholeness that we've ignored. Right. And if we go into it and we actually get its message, it might actually go away because it's there to call us into something. Right. It might, you know, it, it's these things are all these ways that our body talks to us. So our dreams at night, our body symptoms, even little like flirts or synchronicities or things that call call our attention. We're walking outside and for some reason our eyes get fixated on something or a song gets stuck in our head. Mm-hmm. We think it's like an annoying thing, but what if it's there actually to give us a message to something that yes. we're ignoring? So we're living in this intelligent world. And in fact, everything around us is interestingly always calling us into our wholeness. And we just have to open up to it. Right. And when we access these secondary parts of ourselves, we just have so much more potential because we have so much more access to information, skills, and ways of doing things. It's all of the things we say, I can't do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not creative. You know, oh, I can't play music. I can't sing. And it's all the other, the identities, all the things that I am this, I am this, I vote this way, you know, I do this, you know, I'm in this rigid kind of box. Right. The reality is that there's so much more to us. And the, the more we get rigid in this primary process, the more that these signals become louder and louder. So little aches and pains turn into illnesses, sicknesses and diseases and right. death. And death little dreams turn into nightmares and, you know, all of a sudden we can't sleep at night. They, they amplify and they amplify because they're, they're there for our own benefit right. to, wake, to wake us up to something that we've sort of marginalized and right. closed, closed off to. Another thing I've been uh, thinking about is every day do something new, do something that scares you. Like you were just saying, like the things that aren't in the box, let's go out of the box, do one thing. It's in it. You know, I was reading something, this quantum physics science about even can change your, the cells in your body, the DNA, when you, you know, even if you just go to work a different, go a different way to work, go to a different grocery store. You know, I was telling the girls that this morning, I'm like, you know, do something different today. Go sit at a different table at lunch, go talk to someone new, but train your mind to challenge your, do something that's not comfortable, but you do talk about that, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I call it getting comfortable with the uncomfortable. Yes. And there's a lot of ways to look at that. But the reality is, is that, you know, the science of flow science by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and many other people like Jamie Wheel and Stephen Kotler and others talk about that the key to life satisfaction is actually challenging yourself about three to 4% over your current skill level. Right. So that people aren't happy by the easy win. Right. If I'm if I'm like a grandmaster of chess and I'm playing like a beginner, I don't get really any satisfaction about beating them. But win or lose, if I challenge myself, not too much that it's overwhelming and not too little that it's too easy, but just right on that edge of a couple percent over like what I can currently do, win or lose, we feel fulfilled. And in my understanding, it's because what brings us fulfillment is growth and learning. 
right. not winning. It's being that infinite player. And so in that context, challenging yourself a little bit each day in any different way, challenging yourself with a cold plunge, challenging yourself in the sauna with your exercise routine, with a meditation, something simple, trying a new food, trying a new route to work. Or what about just like expressing some deep emotion to somebody that you've been holding back from? Right. You know, how many of us hold back from what we really want to say and just tell somebody, God, I love you so much. I really care about you. You're so, you mean so much to me. Mm -hmm. It's so hard for us to do, but just going over our edge really bit, a little bit, even to a coworker, just saying, thank you. Instead of sending an email, walk across the office and talk to them in person. Instead of saying, sending an email, send a letter in the mail. Mm -hmm. What a risk, what a great return on investment that is, right? I mean, God, you'd be shocked if you got something in the mail instead of an email that, you know, you get 500 a day of, but you get zero letters in the mail handwritten, right? But so it's like those kinds of things, finding ways to just change it up. And in fact, that is a part of the process of really having a fulfilling life, Mm -hmm. right? This is a university, not a universe. We're here to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, we are souls on on a journey, an epic, courageous journey of growth and discovery. And when we, you, when you live that each day, you find more and more fulfillment in your life. Yeah. At the, at the same at the same way, when you're when you're on the edge, when you're looking at like human performance and human optimization, you have to be really comfortable with two things. One is a double signal, which means your body is giving you negative feedback that what you're about to do isn't working for you. Maybe you're going about to walk down a dark alley, and and you know like you get feeling in your stomach. Or like when I was investing, maybe it's like, I'm going to go press the buy button, but I get a slight headache. Or I'm about to, you know, let my kid go do something. You know, it's these little hunches and these little symptoms that we get. But there's a difference between like negative feedback from our body that's congruent and us just being afraid to push ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when we get really comfortable with the edge, when we get comfortable with the uncomfortable, we can get dialed in to what that feels like. So we can know more appropriately, is this just a voice of fear telling me I can't do something? Or is this actually a congruent signal from the wisdom of my body telling me I need to rethink what I'm doing? Right. It's a very fine line, but that's where this comes in with more and more practice of really dialing that in. Right. That reminded me of when you were talking about when, like for an example, you ask your wife to go to dinner and she kind of like her body, the body language, you know, like the, you just know that she's like, go because of you. And and I know her acts of her love language of acts of service. Cause I, that's mine too. When I was listening to you talk about that's a, the dynamic in a relationship and that body language and how you describe that. Yeah. Double, you know, communication or or paying attention to one's signals in a, in a relationship, not just an intimate relationship, but so important with like employees, managers and coworkers and, and, and uh, so forth. Right. And also within relationship to ourself, there's all these different components, but you know, we've all had experience of walking to walking up to somebody. In fact, this happens almost weekly, if not daily to me, you walk up to somebody and you say, Hey, how are you? And they say, ah, yeah, I'm good. And they kind of shake their head and their body sinks and their voice lowers. And you can tell that they're not good. Right. But they're saying they're good. Right. So what we say holds so little information. Right. In fact, 
our body language and what we feel has about 90% of the available information. And what we're saying has about 10%. Mm. So when I'm working with my clients, I'm paying less attention to what they're saying than what their body language is doing. So if they're telling me at a dream and they're sitting there like this and all of a sudden they go like this and they have their arms up in the air, right? Just not even thinking about it. I know that there's big energy in that and there's something in this signal. Hmm. But in, in the same way, double signals, when we pay attention to moments when the verbal content and the body are saying two different things within herself or somebody relationally, mm-hmm. we, we can get so much information. You know, it could be as simple as we go to shake somebody's hand on a deal and they, they turn their, uh, their eyes away or they have a weak handshake. Or we go ask somebody, hey, are you okay taking on this project, you know, this new project this weekend? Maybe, you know, we're the boss and we're, we're telling somebody that works for us, hey, you know, are you okay with this new thing? And they're too afraid to tell us no. So they say yes, but all of the signs of their body are saying no. Well, in that moment, if we don't notice that, we're going to have a real problem on our hand because either they're going to be disgruntled or they're not going to do it well. And it'd be a lot better if we said, listen, I'm noticing that there might be some incongruency here. Why don't you just take the night to think about if this is the right opportunity for you Mm. and come back to me tomorrow? And, you know, and even with our partners, hey, do you want to go out to dinner tonight? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. You know, let's go. I'm like, wait a minute. Why don't you take a moment to just really feel into that and draw that out? And there's a lot of ways to go actually into those deeper incongruencies but mm-hmm. without, without actually doing a whole lesson on process work, the reality is, is that when you notice an incongruency, just take a moment to pause and see if the situation needs to be rethought about or reimagined and encourage your partner in a very playful and inviting and open way. Explore that inside of themselves. Mm-hmm. I, no- I noticed you took a deep breath. I noticed a sigh. I noticed your eyes looked down. I noticed your head turned away. I noticed your energy dropped. I noticed the tone in your voice changed. I noticed a slight hesitation. I noticed you looked a little nervous or anxious or all these things in my own self. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can become a stalker of these signals in others and in ourselves. And we can bring in so much more information and we can keep ourselves out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Okay. I want to talk about your new program where I know we're going over, but you said it was okay. So I'm having fun. We're in the flow. We're in the flow. The flow. I love the flow. And I know you love the flow. So uh, we got to talk about this abundance archetype program that you are, are starting. It started. Yeah. Well, it's starting. We can still sign up. You can still sign up. Yeah. Okay. You know, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but I'll just tell you a little high level of that. And then Tell people how to find it, if that's okay. No, I want, I want you, I want to go down the eight steps. I want to oh, okay. like, at we, least, we yeah. Want to dig, we want to dig in. Okay. I mean, yeah, I want to dig in a little bit since you All said right. it's okay to go over. Yeah. I, that's like one of the, I've learned so much just from, I guess what it was is listen to your journey. I know you're, you're going to be the teacher now. And I wanted to see what you looked at as the eight, you know, the pro, the things that you pulled out of all your, te- everything that you've learned. Yeah, so, so that's why I think to end it, I think this is what Jason thinks are the eight most important things that he wants to teach the world of what he has gathered within the last 15 years of his just trying to discover yeah. his soul. Yeah. Thank you so much for the, the space to do that. I appreciate that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So just, just very high level, as we spoke about, I was on wall street for 20 years and very successful. And then along that way, 
we talked about my journey into like the self-development and the psychology and the holistic nutrition and movement and all sorts of things, martial arts, shamanism, indigenous practices, Native American studies, tarot, biogeometry, et cetera. And I really incorporated those into my Wall Street experience for 10 years and became very sustainably successful without having it be at the expense of my health or my family. Right. And in 2019, I retired from Wall Street and I just said, you know what, I want to try something new. It was like that challenge the skills ratio. Right. I just felt, I felt the calling to do something different. And I spent the last couple of years really trying to figure this out. And the last year in particular, how did I, how do I synthesize everything I learned on Wall Street in the wealth world with everything I learned on the well-being side of things and become a bridge to the two? And it was very interesting for me personally talking about identity is that when I left Wall Street, I said to myself, I don't want to be that guy, mm-hmm. right? So what was primary mm-hmm. Wall Street trader and what was secondary, we'll call it healer, psychology, therapy, et cetera, actually switched, right? Mm-hmm. So now being this therapist, being a coach became primary and the trader became secondary. Only to realize that we can't get away from ourselves. All of the parts of ourselves need to be heard. They all need a voice at the table. Right. And to the fact that we marginalize any part of ourselves, they become almost like an inner terrorist working against us and come out through body symptoms and various things. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, I realized that my true purpose was to integrate the two, the wealth and the well-being, right? And to actually live this whole self and not to just shun either of those two or, or think that they can't be put together. I met so many people on Wall Street that didn't have health, pills, heart attacks, strokes, worse. And so many people in the spiritual world and the psychology world that are barely, you know, have enough money to, to get by, you right. know? And, and I'm like, this, there's got to be a better way. And I was doing this post on Instagram last night. I was talking about, we think that these two need to be divorced. But if you look back history, it shows that actually all of the large spiritual movements all were predicated by money. Jesus, research shows that Jesus was given today's equivalent of $4 million worth of frankincense and myrrh and oils at his birth by something like 300 kings and the Magi and all this stuff. Moses was living with Pharaoh. He was a prince. Arjuna was a prince. Buddha was a prince. And Muhammad was married to a very wealthy businesswoman and became a very wealthy merchant himself. So I don't know where this idea started, this virus that these two things need to be separated, that if you, if you want to be like a spiritual person, you have to be poor, that money is like the root of all evil. But if you look back at history, it shows that actually all of the great movements that we're actually worshiping today, we think hold those belief systems were actually started right. on rich people right. that, huh. knew, that had money and knew how to use it, right? So just my thing. But so essentially what I did is I, I created, there's two parts to this course. You mentioned the eight keys to mastery, but there's also this whole other second stream about this process-oriented approach to business. So I synthesized the key six steps to becoming a successful business person, a successful podcaster, a successful investor, or anything. You know, defining your competitive edge, knowing what you do great, um, setting up indicators so you know when you have a large opportunity or a large edge, which is what creates stable, repeatable returns for you. So once you know in in your podcast what your competitive edge is, what makes your podcast unique, what Mm -hmm. makes your podcast one of the 
hundreds of thousands that don't make it past episode eight, right? right? This is your niche, your, you know, vision statement. This is your alpha or your differentiating factor. Then you need to know how to use your your units of time, energy, money, and resources appropriately to invest in marketing or the right guests or the right content or your own time and research, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we were if we were counting cards at the casino and we were going to play blackjack, when we had when we thought there was going to be a good hand, a high probability of a good hand, we'd bet really large. Right. And when we thought there was going to be a bad hand, we'd bet little or nothing. Right. But we go through life typically betting the same size bets on everything. But we must dial in what's the opportunity set in front of us. Then we have systems of evaluation, become a disciple of our process, looking at double signals and synchronicities and dreaming, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, learning from our mistakes and turning our losses into lessons, and ultimately learning to detach, not being attached to the outcome, but becoming process-driven. And these same things happen in our business and also in our life. We must know the competitive edge about what makes us tick. What do we love to do? What diet, movement practices, et cetera? How are we using our own resources of money, time, energy, our presence, our attention? What kind of systems of evaluation do we have so we know what works for us? You know, are we measuring our heart rate? Are we having a diet log or a sleep log? Or, you know, are we checking how much pain we're in after a workout or what our sex drive is or our vitality or the clarity of our skin or what our stools look like? our willingness to participate in life. What's our mood like? What does our partner say our mood's like? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then we become in, in the same way, a disciple of it, learning from our mistake, learning from our mistakes and learning to detach, realizing that there are things that are completely out of our control in life. And that that's ultimately the source of abundance is that we can't ultimately control the end outcome in life. We can only control the process. Right. And what I found to be as the foundation of abundance is that no matter what life throws at you, you don't lose your spirit. You know who you are. You know what you stand for. You know that you're a divine being having a human experience. And no matter what life throws your way, you never let that change your attitude to life. You're mm-hmm. always saying you're always saying yes to life. And then that brings us into the mastery section that you alluded to, mm-hmm. where I thought about, okay, I've studied with all these people. What are the eight things that I could reduce, or I wasn't even thinking eight things. It was like, how do I teach what I learned? Right. And I had a million different models of this course where I was thinking, okay, everyone's going to walk, you know, a day in the life of me or like a wheel, you know, I had all these ideas that were just, were just garbage, you know, in the end. <laughs> and it wasn't until I developed a receptive approach to listening to the course, I realized that the course itself had an intelligence. And I call, I call her a she, I call her a she, that she is alive, that I work for her, that there is, she has her own dream and her own path and her own students and her own mission and larger plan. And I need to almost get out of the way of it and help facilitate it come to life. And oh, when, I, wow. when, I st- when I started to get into that mode, it started to unfold to me and what I did in my, in my studies of flow, because I ultimately realized that what we're talking about are these moments of flow. When we're in the flow, we're performing and feeling at our best. We're time slowing down. We're losing our sense of self. You know, it's effortless. It's rich. Athletes talk about this. You know, musicians, actors talk about this. We're like, you're just in the flow and things are just cruising, right? Mm-hmm. 
And I went back and I, like I said, I studied Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and he goes, he kicks it back to William James, American psychologist. And then I was turned on to William James and, and William James is talking about how he was doing all this stuff with yogis from India. And I was like, okay. And so then I went deep and deep and deep into, into study of yoga and realized that Ashtanga yoga, which is one of the four types of yoga, you know, it's funny that people actually think what yoga is, is like almost like CrossFit. Right. And it's like yeah. going to the gym and, and working their tail off. But actually there's four kinds of yoga, Ashtanga, Yana, Bhakti, and Karma yoga. And Ashtanga yoga itself has eight limbs or eight steps, the third of which is what we call yoga. So it's like a fractional, you know, yoga is this like massive library of information, a complete worldview, a way of living and looking at the world, right? The particular postures that we do that we call yoga in the West is only a small facet of it. And I realized that these eight limbs or these eight steps to Ashtanga yoga were essentially a foundation that people have been using for tens of thousands of years to create these flow states in a systematic way. Hmm. And so I've adapted them to my own system where first step is you got to do what you love to do. You got to work on your unconscious belief systems. You have to find yourself surrendering to your passion. You have to fully individuate, know yourself inside and out and do what you are called to do and meant to do. There's only one of you. And if you want to be indispensable to an employer, you have to actually bring out your own uniqueness because nobody else can do what you do. Right. This, the second step was this embodiment component, this Paul checks four doctors, that once we have a dream of what we want to do, once we know our life's mission and we're surrendering to our passions and we're being ourself, we have to take care of our body. We have to eat right and nourish our body. We have to get enough sleep. It doesn't matter if you're a parent, a teacher, an athlete, a doctor. If you're not eating right for your body type, if you're not resting, if you're not moving your body according to your needs and you're not having play in your life, you're not going to be able to perform at your best. The third one is knowing about poise and posture and how to set up our desk. This is what they call asana in yoga. This is the, the posture, mm. but in actuality, it translates into taking our seat. And so in, in, in our world, we need to know if we're going to be doing three hour podcasts, or if we're going to be at our desk for eight hours in a day, how do we sit while not having back pain and neck pain and having optimal flow of oxygen so that we could perform at our best in a sustainable way? It doesn't matter if you're a parent holding your kid or you're a teacher or you're an athlete. You have to understand how to put yourself in a state of poise where you're balanced, relaxed, and you have the optimal flow of oxygen. If you want to create change in your life, change requires four times more oxygen than your habitual state. So focusing on how you're sitting, whether or not it's in your car on the way to work or on a train or at your desk, and setting yourself up in a way that you make it work for you, right? Whether or not you're 6'5 or 4'8, if you go into an elementary, you know, a high school, let's say, or a college classroom, the desks are completely the same size. Right. If you go on an airplane, same size. Everything's the same size. But in the reality, completely unique sizes and shapes and, and lengths, right? Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to create a system that works for you. You have to have variety and optionality to move things around and create variety. Then once you have this, this optimal flow of oxygen from the cor correct posture, you move into your heart. You move into a state of coherence where now your mind and your heart and your body are all synced through your breathing. You slow down your breathing rate. You find something that works for you, you know, maybe like three seconds or five seconds in or any kind of breath work that synchronizes your whole body experience, your three minds. Now you're accessing the intelligence of your heart. 
You're moving into your right brain. You're accessing your intuition. You're accessing imagination, future prediction, creativity, the whole receptive feminine side of things. And you're gaining much more information. Then step five, we're moving up to our throat. We have to learn to eliminate distractions. Just think about how much many distractions there are. Distractions are the death of flow states. You know, one simple way to think about this is, you know, for example, Paul Check says, our yes has no value until we learn how to say no. Mm-hmm. We must say no. Peter Drucker, a business consultant, says first things first, second things never. Mm-hmm. We must identify in every moment what's the first thing. You know, Steve Jobs was somebody who could, who could answer this question, which is that if I was going to get into the business I was in yesterday, today, for the first time, would I still do it? Or am I only doing it because this is what I've always known and this mm-hmm. is what we've invested? You have to be willing to throw it away and start with a clean slate, like you said. And here's a deep one for you. What about in relationships? Would I still get in this relationship today? Or am I only in it because I have a piece of paper that says I have to, or I'm afraid to leave, or because this is what's comfortable? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that one always hits me really <laughs> really deep. It's a deep one. So, but anyway, so that's, that's this fifth step. You know, it takes about 20 or 30 minutes to get into the flow. Like right now, I feel like I'm in the flow with you where I don't even know that we're really on a podcast. We're just having this conversation. Right. But if I were to check my phone and get a text message, even if I said to myself, oh, that's only going to take me 10 seconds. It's not how long it takes, but it's how long it would take me to get back into the flow with you after. Right. Because these are these really immersed states of productivity. Mm-hmm. Then step six, we work on our focus. And I teach a lot about attentional flexibility where most of us are only having this narrow objective focus where we're like staring at our phones. Mm-hmm. But we're, not, we're not taking into, into account that there's many other ways of attending to space. The space in between us, the space in between me and you right now the space in between my ears or in between my eyes, what's happening in my body right now, the space in this room or the space in the larger context of outside of myself or outside of the room. How do I have a narrow objective? Like I'm paying to you and pay attention to you, but at the same time I'm diffused and immersed in this experience. And we find out that there's a lot more richness and a lot more information. And in fact, our nervous system can slow down. We can move out of fight or flight and into a parasympathetic state mm-hmm. where we're not only pulling. When we're, when we're in a sympathetic state, our body's under like survival threat. And so we're only pulling from what we've known. We can't access new information or learn anything new. So we can relax our nervous system and really open the doors to learn something new. And then in seven, we have to alter our state. We live so much in this consensus reality where everything's like black and white and left brain. But when we can actually, in little ways, alter our states, find ways to be creative, and I call these in my course microdose meditations, little ways I've learned while being at work to think about things differently, to get into that receptive state, to then bring that back through the kind of like a cultivated eureka moment to bring, mm-hmm. that, bring that information then back into formation and do the work in the left brain. But Is that the, sorry, but is that the example where you're in a room and you look, you focus on something? And you try to find the meaning. Yeah. So like many, many people know this now in big corporations, but like when you get stuck on a problem, you're working, you're working, working, you're stuck. It can be very easy. It can be very useful to just play a game, to go for a walk, right? To have some play, to get out of the moment. But there's all, there's all these little ways that, I, that I've learned that I've I put in this course where like, let's just say I'm stuck on a problem, right? And I can't figure out a problem or I, 
Should I do this? Should I invest in this? You just close your eyes for a moment, let yourself get completely dream, dreamlike or foggy or just empty your mind. And then you just open up your eyes with that, the intention of, of the problem you're working on. You open up your eyes and you see the first thing that catches your attention in the room. And then you just ask yourself, if I was to look through the eyes of the object I just flirted with me back at myself, what would I say about this problem? What tip would I have for myself? And it's just an incredible way to alter your state and gain information. The same thing could be if I'm working on a problem and I'm stuck on it, just close my eyes, close my mind and say, what's the first thing? What's the first song that pops into my head right now? And then sing that song and move that song and then say, what was it about that song that popped into my head with its feeling quality and its energy and its lyrics? And how can that help me solve this problem? The same thing, you could be thinking about a problem and then you could just take your pen and do a one minute scribble on a paper without even thinking about it. Just scribble till you feel like you're done. And then like, look at the scribble, turn it around, see if you want to like color it in or amplify it, maybe make it into a figure of some sort. And then look through that, that figure's eyes back at you and say, how can I offer you a tip or a different perspective about this problem you're stuck on? It's all these ways to get out of our own way and realize that like we can access our imagination and creativity. And then finally, we're in step eight, where we're now we're in the flow, where we're in this abundance. But then we actually realize that now that we're here, it's our responsibility to share this with others. We become an elder. We learn how to listen to all voices of everybody, bring, you know, facilitate conflict, understand rank and power and our privileges. And we look at the world like, what is our seven generational return? Not just what is the return for this moment or this lifetime? What's our impact? What's our net impact versus our net worth? Mm -hmm. How is our our wealth performing versus how much do we have in our bank account? What's it doing for others? Recognizing that we're not abundant until we're all abundant together. Right. I love that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's the the big (laughs) thing. So, yeah. So the course is the abundance archetype. If you just go to jasonpicard.org or my Instagram, which I'm sure you'll, you'll share, Jason Picard Official, you can learn more about the course and you can book a discovery call with me and you can learn more about how you can go on this amazing journey with me and other abundance seekers out there that I'm very excited to call students now. Amazing. Something came in my mind. What would you give, what advice would you give to your 26-year-old, 330-pound self? a really good question and so many things are coming to my mind i mean from from a trading perspective i think i would give myself the infinite player advice you know don't make any trade your last that's just from an investing standpoint because when i think of myself as 26 i was so identified with that wall street but from a human perspective i think i would give myself just the gift of of knowing that i'm loved and supported and guided you know i felt so lonely at that time Mm-hmm. You know, to give to give myself that feeling of nourishment or mentorship, to know that I had that, that I was valued as a human being and as a soul, and that there's a larger purpose to this. You know, having knowing that, I think it would have been very comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. Well, Jason, it's been an honor to be in your presence and learn you learn about you and be able to share this time together and the just the knowing for me that people that listen to this show, get the gift of you because I feel like you've been a gift to me and I am grateful. And I look forward to knowing that we are eternally connected 
and to see where our paths will cross. Yeah. You know, as Paul Check says, love is a boomerang. So I feel the same to you. And for all the audience, if, if anything we said today inspired you, make sure to, to share it with others and, and do your part in helping us all become abundant together. So thank you all. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. Thank you for listening to the Uncover Your Magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, always look for the magic.